Good morning. And as we open the word, let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have to gather together to worship you and to sit under your word. The scriptures tell us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. I pray that we would humble ourselves, sit under your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would convict our hearts, but that we would grow in a greater understanding of your steadfast love towards us in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So please turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 90. And as you're finding your way to Psalm 90, I want to prepare us for the reading of the word with this. That on September 21st, 2016, both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times carried an article about a charred Hebrew scroll that was discovered in, 19, uh, in 1970 in a burned-down synagogue. But because of recent developments of technology with digital imaging, they were able to decipher that this scroll was the first two books of Leviticus. And here's what the scholars had to say. One scholar said, we were immediately struck that the En Gedi scroll is identical in all details to what we call the authoritative Jewish text in use today. Another scholar said, for scholars, the scroll brings the good news, I love his choice of words there, uh, brings the good news that the text has not changed for 2,000 years. This is quite amazing to us. So just catch what they're saying is, what the early church would have when they gathered together to worship and had the book of Leviticus open, when we open our Bibles, they're amazed because it's the same words. It's the same book of Leviticus 2,000 years later. But we should not be amazed nor surprised at this, that God is powerful enough to communicate to us through his word, and he is powerful enough to preserve his word for all generations. And so this morning, as we come to Psalm 90, recognize this is a psalm of Moses written roughly 3,500 years ago, but it is the very words of Moses and it is the very word of God, but this is inspired by God. So let's read together Psalm 90, starting in verse one, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are, as, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. 
and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. So Psalm 90 begins book four in the Psalms. And here's why this is significant. The Psalms are comprised of five books. And these books show a progression of the time from the Davidic kingdom until the Israelites were moved into exile. So book one and two of the Psalms are all about David and his kingdom. But really, it's about David as king under the true king, Yahweh. But then as we get into book three, there's only one Davidic Psalm. But a lot of these Psalms in book three are laments. Because this chronicles the time of the fall of Jerusalem. When God's people are disillusioned. They're asking, how long? Why, Lord? Why have you seemingly rejected your people? We have things like Psalm 88, which is a psalm that ends in despair. We have Psalm 89, where the question of God's faithfulness to his promises to David, like they're asking, will these come true? This promise of this everlasting throne, the promise of an eternal peace. And yet we come to Psalm 90, where Moses What he does is take us back before the time of David, all the way back to creation, to the fact that God is an everlasting God and is faithful. Psalm 90 is the only psalm that we have that's attributed to Moses. And the title of the psalm is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 33, verse 1. Now, we can't be certain about why Moses wrote this psalm, But most likely, this psalm was written at the end of Moses' life. What we know is that the Israelites had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and were under the judgment of God because of their rebellion, because of their ingratitude to the Lord, because of their lack of faithfulness. So they were judged by God. And so Moses is looking back at that, at God's faithfulness, even in the midst of these judgments. But Moses is also looking forward to a hope in God as a steadfast God. Because at this point, the Israelites are on the verge of the Jordan River, preparing to cross over into the promised land. And I want to quote Calvin here, who is a wonderful theologian, and he writes this regarding the psalm. It is probable that when the time of his death drew near, he indicted this prayer to assuage the prolonged sorrow under which the people had almost pined away, and to comfort their hearts, under the accumulation of adversities with which they were oppressed. Although the wonderful goodness of God shone brightly in their deliverance from Egypt, yet we know that soon after it was distinguished by their ingratitude, so that for the space of not less than 40 years they were consumed with continual languor in the wilderness. It was therefore very seasonable for Moses at that time to beseech God that he would deal mercifully and gently with his people according to the number of years in which he had afflicted them. Calvin is quite eloquent there. What we see in this psalm is though this is written in the context of Moses and the Israelites and written roughly 3,500 years ago, we can easily identify with this psalm, can't we? This psalm deals with life that is fleeting, 
It deals with the fact that we live under the curse because of the sin that entered in the world through Adam and Eve. It captures the struggle of life, of a fallen world that's often marked by toil and trouble. And yet, there is great hope in in the steadfast God, a faithful God. We have to remember that the Psalms were never intended merely as our own private prayer journal, right? The Psalms were given to the people of God for public worship. So the Psalms are meant to guide our worship both publicly as well as privately. And so a great question for us to ask of any Psalm and this morning of this Psalm is why do we need this Psalm? Why must we have this Psalm for our worship together? Well, first, it's a sobering reminder of who God is in contrast with who we are. I know a college pastor, and it was not me, but a college pastor who once remarked to a student, he said, hey, you know the difference between you and God? Student's like, what's that? He said, you know, God's never confused thinking he's you. It was a bit of rebuke to that student, but that's what this psalm does. This psalm reminds us we're not God. He is the infinite creator. We are the finite creature. So this psalm, in a sense, puts us in our place in a good way. The psalm also puts time in perspective. The culture is all about YOLO. You only live once. And I realize that date or that term is a little outdated, but the heart of it lives on. You only live once, so live it up. In fact, just recently, I was listening to a song that came on the radio And this song was all about YOLO. It was all about living the good life. And here's the lyrics of the song. It says, the good life is what I need. Too many people stepping over me. The only thing that's been on my mind is the one thing I need before I die. All I want is a little of the good life. All I need is to have a good time. Goes on to say, I know that any day could be the last. So this artist is saying, YOLO, what I want is a good life. I just want to have a good time. Here's Moses' take. Moses is like, yeah, YOLO. You only live once. So number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses' point is that we have to live moment by moment under the reign of the everlasting God. So this is a great gut check for believers in every generation. In verses 1 and 2, Moses begins with with a hymn of praise to God. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses acknowledges God as his dwelling place. At another time, in Deuteronomy 33, 27, Moses also referred to God as his dwelling place, as the Israelites' dwelling place. And this, again, is right before Moses' death. He says, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So these are not cheap words from Moses. Moses isn't just throwing down rhymes on a parchment to win a poetry contest. Like, this is real for Moses. He experienced God. The Israelites experienced God as their dwelling place. It was God and not the land of Canaan that sustained them. If you think about it, they, the Israelites did not live off the land, right? They lived off God. God is the one that provided food for them, rained manna down from heaven for them. God is the one who provided water from a rock. 
So God sustained them. Not only that, God shielded them. God shielded them from all the cruel and wicked nations that were around them. God truly was the Israelites' dwelling place. Moses also, besides dwelling place, is is praising God because he is the one true eternal God. He is Lord over time. Moses says, before the mountains were formed and the earth was created, you alone are God. And this is great comfort to us. Because under heaven, nothing is really stable, right? But God is unchanging. He is faithful throughout the generations and in all circumstances. He is our dwelling place as well. He sustains us. He shields us. The truth is, God is our eternal dwelling place. And this is the anchor that we need, especially as we have to continue reading verses 3 through 7, where the tone shifts. So notice that in 1 and 2, we're reminded of creation. We're reminded of our our creator. But then in Genesis, uh, or in, uh, but then in in verse 3 of Psalm 90, we're reminded of Genesis 3, of the curse, of the fall. That has come to us all. Genesis 3.19 says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And surely Moses had this in mind in verse 3 when he writes, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Due to the sin of Adam and Eve, as well as our own sin, we experience decay and eventually death as God returns us to the dust. So the psalm brings us face to face with our own mortality. Our time on earth is relatively short. Life is fleeting. And really, it doesn't matter how pretty or powerful or popular we are or any other P adjective you want to throw in there. Death comes to us all. We really do not have control over that. And death comes to us as a judgment against sin. And so this psalm moves from praise of an eternal God to lament over God's anger for sin. As Moses gives us a sobering reminder, there's an extreme contrast here between God and us. Moses writes in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So Moses is saying from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years, or like a watch in the night, which would be just a few hours. The apostle Peter picks up on this point in Second Peter 3, 8, when he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Peter, in that passage, is referring to the fact that God is not slow to bring about the return of Christ, but is patient, allowing people to repent. But Moses' point here is, compared to our everlasting God, our lives are fleeting Our lives are brief. Time quickly passes for us. And I experienced this reality just uh, when I went back home for Christmas. It was a nice day out surrounding that Christmas weekend. Uh, The weather was relatively nice. So Tiffany and I went for a run at my old high school track. And so as I was running around that track, memories started coming back to my mind. And one in particular came back as I was running around that track, I recalled about 27 years earlier, 
running at that same spot. When this was track practice, there was a group of, uh, there was a group of cute girls there. By the way, I, I mentioned to Tiffany, I'm like, hey, I'm going to talk about cute girls. She's like, that's okay. I had cute boys in my high school. Um, uh, touche. Um, so as I was rounding this corner and I see this group of cute girls, you know, at that point, I kind of bow my chest and, you know, you hear chariots of fire running through your mind. But then I feel this foot. And it's this foot of my supposed friend, Lance Lucas, who has swept my leg and tripped me intentionally so that I fall flat on my face right in front of this group of cute girls. You know, it seems so long ago. I don't hardly remember the details of that incredibly embarrassing moment, except that all the girls were laughing and all my friends were laughing. But besides that, it's all fuzzy. That's where we are incredibly different from God. God's God's mind isn't fuzzy. He remembers every detail of every moment. He really is all-knowing. What Moses can claim, what we can claim, what the scriptures claim, which every generation of believer can claim, is that God is entirely and perfectly present. He is all-knowing. No matter what moment we've experienced, he really was there. Doesn't forget our most embarrassing moments. Our great moments, our moments of tragedy, our moments of despair, our darkest moments, God is there. Not only is he there, not only is he unknowing, he is also all-powerful, right? He doesn't grow weary, he doesn't grow old, he doesn't grow weak. Not only that, but he's perfectly, um, he is perfectly good in those moments, Because we have to step back and recognize that it is an eternal God who has an eternal plan. He has a purpose and a plan for every moment that we've experienced and has the ability to work out those details in a way that is for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And so there's this theme of brevity of our lives, and yet we can have hope in eternal God. But the theme of brevity continues in verses 5 and 6. Moses says, you sweep them away as with the flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So Moses here compares us to grass. Flourishes in the morning, fades in the evening. Morning and evening are metaphors for the beginning and end of life. And this theme that runs through this psalm and runs through the scripture is our lives are like grass, very fragile. Job picks up this theme in Job chapter 14, where he says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. Psalm 103 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind pass over it, and it is gone. And its place knows no more. Isaiah 40, chapter 6. or Isaiah 40, verse 6. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is quoted by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. And James chapter 1, verse 11 says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. 
Moses and the scriptures are very, very clear. Our lives are fragile, like glass, or like grass. They are fleeting. And the tone shifts here. In verse 7 through verse 11, the tone shifts from God's eternity to actually God's anger and wrath towards sin. Verse 7 says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So we all experience this anger, this wrath of God against sin. And the proof is that we all die. Death is the penalty of sin. We know this. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spreads to all men because all sinned. And Moses writes in generic terms when he says our lifespan is 70 to 80 years. But due to the curse, these years are full of toil and trouble. We experienced the decay of our bodies, the decay of our minds. We experience illness. We just experience all forms of suffering. Even one of our staff, as she put it, um, I think eloquently, uh, as she was battling a stomach bug a week ago, she said, you want to know the effects of sin? You want to know how bad the curse really is? How about your head in a toilet vomiting? It's gross and graphic, but it's a good reality. Her, her response was, she ended that with, it's just not the way it's supposed to be. I think, yeah, that's not the way it's supposed to be. This world, this sin in this world, the way it is devastated, it is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin is an unwelcome intruder into God's glorious world. And when the scriptures talk about sin, scripture talks about sin as guilt and corruption, talks about guilt. We are guilty under a holy judge. We can excuse our sin. We can blame others for our sin. We can minimize our sin. But the reality is we are sinful and under a holy judge and in need of forgiveness through Christ. The scriptures also talk about sin as corruption. Think of sin as a spreading virus. Okay, I heard this commercial just recently, and so I'm going to quote this commercial. There's a virus out there, a virus that's serious like HIV, but it hasn't been talked about much, a virus that's been almost forgotten. It's, and I wanted to blurt out sin, but I was in a public place when that commercial was on. But that, that's a great commercial for sin in a sense. It spreads like a virus. It's so dangerous that it will kill us. We will die from it, but it isn't talked about much. And it's almost forgotten in our culture. But we can't forget that sin always leads to death. We must guard our hearts. We must seek to guard our children's hearts against the corruption of sin. Recognizing that we cannot be too casual about sin. Sin is enticing. It seeks to pull us in. We cannot be casual. Moses writes in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. The truth is that there is no sinful thought, word, or deed 
that is hidden from God. And Moses understood this quite well as he is reflecting on the unfaithfulness of the Israelites who tried to hide their sin from God and were judged for it. Nothing can be hidden from God. Moses understood this really well. And he took this very seriously. Do we take it seriously that nothing, no sin can be hidden from God? How seriously do we take this? When we are alone at work and it's a shady situation or it's a shady deal. When we are alone in front of a screen. When we're alone with our own thoughts, our sinful thoughts. When we're alone with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. You know, we'll jokingly tell uh, our kids as they're going out to a date, hey, make room for Jesus tonight. That's a joke, but it's real. He is there. Like all these circumstances where at times we think we're alone, obviously we are never alone. Nothing is hidden from God. Moses, throughout this psalm, refers to God's wrath. But we ask, aren't we exempt from the wrath of God? Yes. The truth is that if God is our dwelling place through Christ, if we have bowed our knees and our hearts to Christ, if he is our Lord and Savior, then yes, we are safe and secure. We will not experience the wrath of God. Yet, what Moses is pointing out is we all live and die under this wrath of God, under the anger of God for a for sin throughout the world. So that is our reality, that in Moses' words, our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And Moses asked a great question, a very sober question, sobering question in verse 11. He says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? See, the greatness of God's anger and his wrath towards sin should entice, evoke Fear. The right response to God's holiness is fear. When I say fear, it is reverence. It is humility. It is awestruck awe at a holy God. But as Calvin rightly pointed out, sinful man is not touched with the feeling of God's wrath because they do not stand in awe of him. And God's anger comes with a holy purpose. It's to, provoke, it's to provoke fear that leads to repentance. As one commentator put it, God's anger warns, invites change, and finally punishes. Anger is the weapon of dominion. It is a voice of strength that challenges chaos, destroys sin, and redeems ugliness. The truth is every human is destined to die under the judgment of God unless and until we find mercy which brings us to the prayers of Moses in verses 12 through 17. In verse 12, Moses says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We number our days and we gain wisdom as we recognize that life is short, as we grow in the fear and knowledge of God, and as we recognize that he and nothing else is ultimately our dwelling place, right? We number our days and we gain wisdom when we grasp what our days are for. And a great summary of that is in Matthew chapter six, 
It's the Sermon on the Mount. Rick read this earlier in our time of worship. Feel free to turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'm in verse 19. Where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And if we can continue on with the Sermon on the Mount, we number our days and we gain wisdom as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as our priorities. And that's from Matthew six thirty-three. See, the truth is we often have to choose between the things that the earth, that the world treasures and heavenly treasures. We have to make choices. Think about the things that the world treasures. It's a lust for wealth. It's the display of beauty and sexuality. It's popularity at any cost. It's constant pleasure. It's the comfortable life of gadgets and leisure and vacations. Right? Are these your ultimate treasures? What do you treasure? Because we are called to lay all of these desires at the feet of Jesus. And ask, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of righteousness? And recall the parable that Jesus told of the rich fool who decided to tear down his barns, build bigger ones. And what he said to himself was this. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But in that parable, God calls him a fool. What do we long for? What do we desire? What do we hunger and thirst after? We number our days and we gain wisdom as we recognize that life is short, that we grow in the knowledge and fear of God, and that he is our ultimate dwelling place. Notice, there's also another tone, uh, a change of tone in this psalm. As, as Moses moves from lament to prayer for God to have mercy. In verse 13, Moses cries out, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. In verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So Moses prays for the Lord to satisfy his people, that they may rejoice and be glad all their days. And that's in contrast to all these days of trouble and sorrow that they've been experiencing. Moses prays for a new morning where the light would remove the darkness. And God answered that prayer. In the most profound and powerful way, God answered that prayer, that prayer for mercy, that prayer for satisfaction. Moses looked forward in hope to God's steadfast love, but we can look back at the perfect manifestation of the steadfast love of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If Moses were here, and um, parenthetically, Based on the fact that he was willing to go through the Red Sea and a dangerous wilderness, I think he would have made it to a nice storm to be here. But if Moses was here, okay, if Moses was here, I would bet the farm that right now he would be talking about Jesus. He would say, yes, I delivered God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but, Je but Jesus delivered us from our sin. And yes, God gave me the law, but Jesus perfectly kept the law and he perfectly taught the law. He might even give us a few stories like, hey, remember in Numbers 20, when my people grumbled for lack of water, 
and I struck the rock because God called me to mediate, to stand before him and the people. But I was frustrated. I struck the rock in anger. I was not the perfect mediator. But Jesus is the perfect mediator. Not only that, but Jesus is living water. Those who drink of him will never thirst. Moses could go on. Remember Numbers 21 when my people grumbled again against God and God sent fiery serpents against them that bit them? And when they were bit, it was, it was basically prodding them towards repentance and faith in the holy God. And Moses said, what God had me do is, was fashion a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. But look what Jesus did. Jesus was put up on the cross as a substitute to take on your sin, to take on my sin. Jesus is glorious. And throughout our wilderness wanderings, Moses could argue that God satisfied them with manna. But Moses might argue, but you all have 66 books of the Bible. You can feast on the word. He's given you all that you need. Because the steadfast love of God and the work of Christ, our mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And in verse 15, Moses prays that the joys would balance out the sorrows. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. He prays that the joys will balance out the sorrows. But we recognize that this will be answered perfectly. Yes, we experience in, on this earth trials and struggles and suffering. It's relationships, it's financial, it's health, it's grieving death. But there is a day... Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Moses concludes this psalm with this prayer. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let the favor or the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Throughout Deuteronomy, when that phrase is used of establishing the work of our hands, it's referring to very ordinary and mundane things. In Deuteronomy, it's things like planting and harvesting crops, herding animals, raising children, and so on. It's very mundane and ordinary. It's what we do in our homes, at work, at church, in our neighborhoods. So often our lives are ordinary and mundane, right? But we're called to take all these ordinary and mundane things and to prioritize them in light of God's priorities. It's asking the question, so how do we treat the people around us? How do we treat our spouse? How do we treat our children? How do we treat our friends? How do we treat our boss and our coworkers? Right? How do we view and do our work? Is it to the glory of God? Is it just for personal gain? How do we spend our time? We're called to order everything by God's Values and priorities seeking to please him. And Moses is very clear in Deuteronomy as he calls 
the Israelites to follow him and to follow the law. So often Moses also says, and so the nations around you will say, what a great God that you serve. That is still our calling to live in a way that glorifies God, but also shows him to a world that desperately, desperately needs him. Okay, so there's a quote that I've saved for last. And it's from a 1930s movie called When the Wind Blows. This is for Dave Upchurch. This is my retirement gift to him. He loves his old movies. So I'm not going to tell you anything about the movie. I'm just going to give you the quote. It's a great quote. You ready? Applesauce, Mary. We ain't got time for fooling. That's it. That's all I'm going to give you. Except I'm going to explain it. First of all, applesauce. What a great cuss word. Like any teenagers in here, if you are tempted to cuss, we're fine with it. Applesauce. That's a solid word. Applesauce, Mary. We ain't got time for fooling. Okay. We're called to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We ain't got time for fooling. As I say this, are there areas of your life where you're fooling? Areas of life where you are complacent and comfortable with sin. Sin is always crouching at our door and seeks to devour us. What areas are we fooling? Yes, there is time for leisure. There is time for fun. There is time for laughter. That's not what I'm talking about. But where are we fooling? Where are we not taking on the responsibilities and the relationships that God has given us to really glorify him? We ain't got time for fooling. This psalm is a great model of prayer. This is a great psalm for us. Why do we need the psalm as the people of God? It models what our lives should be about. Praising God that he is our everlasting dwelling place. But also lamenting our sin. Asking God to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Calls us to prioritize his kingdom above our own. And to satisfy us with his steadfast love. And to establish the work of our hands. Yes, to establish the work of our hands. Because we ain't got time for fooling. So let's pray together. Father in heaven. We give you thanks for this psalm. We praise you for this psalm. That exalts you as our dwelling place. And we need to hear that. But we also need to hear that our lives are short and fragile. And that you have called us to number our days. So I do pray that you would help us as a church, that you would establish the work of our hands, that we would love and care for those within our building, but that you would take us outside of this building and that we would show your gospel clearly to the world, that we would proclaim your love, your grace to a world that needs it. Lord, there is much lament in this psalm and we can identify with it. And so even in the congregation this morning, heavy hearts, burdens, You know them all, and so we give them to you. And specifically for Dustin and Katie Mortensen, as as Dustin's mom passed away, Lord, would you bless them, comfort them, be with them, turn your face towards you that, that they would recognize and be secure and affirmed in the fact that you are their dwelling place, that you would show yourself to be faithful there in the grieving process. Pray, pray also for Bill Vogler and his father this morning as, um, as his father's been in the hospital with gastrointestinal issues. Pray that you would give him comfort and that you would give them just sweet time together.
And Father, there's other needs in our congregation. You know them. We lift them to you. I pray that we would seek your face. And also, as we know, there is the change of presidency coming. I pray that you would help us to be mindful that before the mountains were brought forth or you formed the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, that we, we all Christians, unite under you as our true king. Do pray for our nation, that you would bless the gospel going forth, but help us to remember that our hope cannot be in a presidency or anything earthly. It has to be in you and in only you. Father, I do pray that you would establish the work of our hands, that we would glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.